0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for
1: life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jessie Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. It's been more than two years now since the modern-day Too movement took off. Earlier this spring, Harvey Weinstein went to prison for 23 years. It was a moment for me. It made me reflect on all the important things that have changed for women at work since then, and also all the things that haven't. So I wanted to talk to someone who's working to turn the viral outrage of me Too into real systemic change. Ali Call was fresh out of Harvard Law School, and she'd scored a big job at a fancy law firm, Boyschiller. Then she learned her firm represented Weinstein, and it had hired spies to track his victims and attempt to discredit them. It was a practice so despicable she could not live with it. So she quit and started the Purple Campaign. And this is the first episode we recorded entirely at home. You're going to hear it in the sound quality. Bear with us. It's worth it. Also, we'll be checking in with more of you, right after Allie's story. Here's Allie. How much progress have we made and how do you measure it?
0: I think measuring progress on this issue is really complicated because if you're getting this right, if you're taking steps to create a really healthy culture, you're probably going to see an increase in reporting at the, at the, as a first instance because it means that people feel comfortable reporting to the company, right, about things that are happening. So, you know, one one metric of Um, improvement is seeing more people willing to come and report these issues, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have a spike in prevalence. It means you have a renewed trust in the company, and eventually over time, you want to see those reports go down. I do think that we've seen a lot of progress in terms of some of the policy changes that we've been advocating for At the Purple Campaign, probably most noticeably in the area of the use of non-disclosure agreements and forced arbitration. So, you know, a majority of non-union employees um, are currently bound by contracts that make them sign away their right to bring a civil lawsuit or to speak about harassment if it happens on the job. And I think the Me Too movement has done a tremendous job of raising awareness about the um, problematic side of those agreements and the fact that they have kept this problem in the shadows for so long. So about 13 states have passed laws to end the use of none of those practices and several employers, including Google and Facebook and others have voluntarily dropped the practice without even being required to by law. So that's one example where I do see some hopeful change, but there's certainly a lot more work to do.
1: Going back to this idea that so much of this goes underreported. I think that there's a general perception that at a lot of companies, HR isn't there to help you so much as to protect the company and that the repercussions to you are real. It creates this chilling effect around actually raising any of these issues. How do we how do we possibly start to go beyond that?
0: It starts with setting the right tone and and meaning it. For example, we've you know we've seen some corporate leaders start to rethink their approach to training where they rather than having the training come from an angle of here's how to protect the company or not to get yourself or the company in trouble. We're seeing trainings addressing this issue more about here's how we create shared workplace norms that empower and respect us all. So I think that's one way. Another thing people are doing is there's been a huge rise in the use of anonymous reporting platforms. There are a lot of new tech companies and apps that have started and even just sort of more simple internally or externally managed hotlines that allow anonymous reporting. And we're seeing companies becoming more comfortable with taking action on the basis of only anonymous reports where anonymous reports really show a pattern of behavior by one individual that that's allowing companies to take those a little bit more seriously. And it protects the people who are in the position of reporting from risking anything because they don't have to put their name on the report. But you're getting at the fact that I think reporting is at the root of all of this. You need a holistic solution. You need people to trust the company. And in order to do that, they have to see you following through on every step of the process.
1: Can you think of or can you point to from your work examples of companies that have actually improved on that front? Airbnb
0: is one of our corporate partners, and they have developed a very unique training approach that their uh, general counsel and chief ethics officer has personally delivered with all of their employees around the world in small group settings, and it really connects to Airbnb's mission, which is to create a sense of belonging wherever people are in the world. And the training goes on to say, well, how can we do that effectively if we don't create a sense of belonging here at the company every day? And and what does that mean? What does integrity look like? Um, You know, there's new research that shows that if you approach employees as potential perpetrators, they get very defensive and shut down, and there can be a backlash effect that happens even in the workplace. But when you approach people as potential a- allies and bystanders and a part of the solution, they're much more receptive to listening to the training and to taking steps to prevent issues when they arise. So I think Airbnb is doing a really great job of that. Explain
1: that a little bit more, Ali. Actually, that's, that's a really interesting distinction. What does it mean to engage them in sort of setting a work context versus controlling their own personal behavior?
0: There are people who see themselves as likely targets of harassment, either because they've been harassed before or they have experienced other forms of discrimination. They're a part of a, a class of people who have historically been discriminated against. And then there's kind of everybody else who either thinks they're sitting through this training because their potential perpetrator, somebody who's going to violate the policies or get themselves in trouble, or they think this training is irrelevant, has nothing to do with them, and they just tune out. We're trying to think about how do you get that those two second groups to really engage with this issue. And I think it starts with approaching them and making the case to them about why this issue affects them. So, for example, we know that Um, workplace harassment tends to decrease organizational commitment at companies, even among people who aren't personally affected by it. So just knowing that harassment is endemic to the workplace can decrease somebody's interest in staying at the company. So if you're motivated to come to work every day because you love your company and you want to see it succeed financially, then you should care about making sure there's not a harassment problem here because we're going to lose top talent if there is. Um, It means, I think, you know, approaching them with with sort of the business case for addressing this issue too if you care about this company's success you should also care again about making sure that we live by the, the values that are in our code of conduct and some people ask me you know isn't that a little mercenary like that you're, you're selling this from kind of a bottom line perspective but i believe that that you know in a capitalist society that that's an important lever for change of course we want people to make positive change out of the goodness of their hearts but i also think you're going to convince some people to take this up as an, as something they care about um, because of the business case who might not care about it from a personal perspective.
1: That's, I guess, what it means to truly change the system versus blowing up the system, right? Yeah, I
0: think so. You know, I think, I think it's a huge um, opportunity that would be missed. And it's a lot of why I was so passionate about starting the Purple Campaign was I saw So much dialogue around bad actors in the Me Too dialogue, but I was also looking for a way to incentivize good actors to um, follow each other so that we're creating, um, you know, a, a world that's more like the one we want to live in.
1: What has surprised you the most in the last couple of years? I think I've been surprised by the
0: extent to which there are good male allies in positions of power in a lot of these organizations, and maybe not just male allies, but unexpected allies. I think in in Congress, we saw this be a very bipartisan issue. And likewise, in some of you know these large companies that we've been working with, we've been able to engage with very senior leaders in the company who are deeply, deeply thinking about this issue. So there is true passion behind this issue from people who I wouldn't have expected to see it from.
1: We're taking a quick pause here. Coming up after the break, Ali shares the Me Too story that set her down this path. The LinkedIn
0: Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA.
2: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
1: Now back to our show. When Allie was 18, she landed a prestigious summer internship with the senator. It was paid. And it came with an open secret.
0: I told my parents, and as you know, proud parents are known to do, they started bragging around town about my summer job and pretty quickly started to hear from people in the know that this was not an office that they wanted their teenage daughter interning in. I was excited about the job. I didn't think it was fair that I should have to walk away from it because of what was implied to be related to my gender. Um, And, you know, ultimately was kind of a stubborn teenager, decided I wanted to proceed with the internship and did so with my guard up a little bit. But um, as the summer went on, really loved the experience for all the reasons that I thought that I would and mostly had a great time until the end of the summer when I was at the Democratic National Convention in Boston that year, and at an evening event, ended up being groped by the senator who I was interning for in a group of people. And, you know, I told a few people afterward about what happened, um, people that I trusted, but I didn't seriously consider reporting it through formal channels because what those conversations i had with the people i trusted revealed to me was that what my parents had picked up on was largely true which was that this senator's behavior was really an open secret on the hill people had the information they just weren't interested in doing anything about it because he was a very powerful senator and they didn't want to challenge his behavior and i was an 18-year-old intern and so I internalized this message that was very much um, this is something to put behind you and and move on from and and not to make a big deal out of. And that this is kind of a cost of doing business as a young woman on Capitol Hill.
1: Did you feel at that moment like it was somehow your fault or you should have known to expect it because you had had some sort of, uh, I guess, pre- warning from your parents, and you call yourself a stubborn teen, but I'm sorry, it's not stubborn to think that it's appropriate to take a very prestigious summer internship.
0: Yes, agreed with you on that. Um, And yeah, I was a little bit embarrassed. And I think I still knew what was happening was wrong and not my fault. But I also felt like I had knowingly taken the risk and that therefore, perhaps I had less ground to stand on to complain about what was happening.
1: So, So at the time... You put that behind you. You completed the summer. And what happened next in your career?
0: So I went on to work on a number of um, political campaigns. I ended up back on the Hill as a staffer in both the House and the Senate. Um, I ended up deciding to go to law school, which was something that I had also been interested in since college. And um, after law school, I ended up joining a law firm here in D.C. where I was doing litigation work. And that's where I found myself working. Um, in October of 2017, when the Me Too movement went viral. And it immediately had me thinking about these experiences in my own life. And not only was that experience, obviously, one that I shouldn't have had to go through, but I think the more the more harmful piece of it to me was really the message I internalized about the need to kind of keep quiet and not make a big deal about these stories. And it's why I was so moved to see the actresses coming forward and sharing very bravely experiences that felt so similar to the one that I'd had about somebody so powerful in their industry.
1: It feels like a pretty common experience for me and for many of my female peers to have this reaction where we thought, oh goodness, something happened to me. Maybe I never talked about it. Maybe I never even had the language to name it. And watching other people name it gives me the strength to name it. It was like this collective... Waking up.
0: People tend to minimize experiences that happen to themselves. I know that I certainly did that in the case of what happened to me as an intern. And even as I've told that story to peers in D.C. over the years, I've been shocked by the number of people who have then shared their own experiences, even with this very same senator at this very same event. And it certainly even opened my eyes as someone who already was aware of this problem to its pervasiveness.
1: So at the time, you ended up writing about your own experience, right? How did that come to pass?
0: It came about because I was on Twitter, as many of us were, the night that Me Too went viral. And I saw um, somebody, a stranger I didn't know, tweet something to the effect of, shouldn't the hashtag be which time? And it got me thinking about all of my times and the, including my experience as an intern. And I so I retweeted her and I said, I, I alluded to the fact that one of my experiences involved a former United States senator. And didn't really think much of it until the next day I got an email from a Washington Post reporter who had been searching Twitter and had seen my tweet and asked if I'd be willing to speak with her about my experience. And it really wasn't a story that I would have sought out to tell publicly. She explained to me that she was trying to write this story about the fact that Congress had a very broken system for handling complaints of discrimination and harassment. And that as a part of that story, she wanted to be able to report that sexual harassment is a problem on the Hill as it is in every workplace. And that she was having a really hard time finding people who would talk to her about their experiences in Congress. I had just earned my Harvard Law degree. I was no longer working in the industry. I knew I had every right to tell my story and to not be retaliated against for them doing that. And that I was kind of uniquely positioned to do so.
1: It occurs to me that in that moment, you were very early in your career at a very prestigious law firm, it wouldn't be a no brainer that you'd want to do that.
0: Um, it was a really difficult decision. I didn't want the first thing people when they googled my name to see was this exp- horrible experience that I'd had. It. But I ultimately felt like if I could send a different message to the eighteen-year-old women and 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 others who I who are coming into this profession today than the one that was sent to me fifteen years ago that it was worth it and I was as you mentioned just inspired by the others who had bravely done so I felt like you know courage begets courage and I I was um, moved by what I saw happening in Hollywood and felt like I wanted to be a part of that in my own industries and circles.
1: But then shortly after that article published. You found out something else about the place that you worked, right?
0: Right after the article came out, um, Ronan Farrow from The New Yorker published a story about my law firm titled Harvey Weinstein's Army of Spies. Not only had we been representing him in sort of a normal course of business, but we had actually hired this private investigative firm called Black Cube to surveil the actresses who are starting to come forward with their stories in an attempt to dig up dirt and discredit them and to stop their stories from ever being published in the new york times which by by this point of course now they already had and they were the very stories that had prompted the me too movement to go viral that had inspired me to tell my own story it caused a real moment of soul searching for me especially as somebody who just put myself out there and told my own story Uh, To reckon with the question of what the role of lawyers in this movement should be and the extent of the harm that our firm had caused to both the individuals that we targeted, but also to this movement and issue more broadly by doing what we had done.
1: Ali, did it really catch you completely by surprise that your firm was involved in that? I mean, isn't that in part what large law firms are responsible to do?
0: and I believe that everybody, including Harvey Weinstein, has a right to a good lawyer, and that is a fundamental bedrock principle of the profession that I'm a part of. But I was shocked by the tactics that the firm had used in connection with that engagement. They had hired a female investigator to pretend to be a women's rights activist, and she befriended Rose McGowan, one of the actresses who was coming forward with her stories. And in, it met up with her under the pretense that she wanted her to come speak at a, uh, a a keynote event that she was organizing for women's activism and then got her phone number and would text her and tell her how proud she was of Rose McGowan for speaking up and sharing her story. And it just it put in my mind as somebody who had just put myself out there to share my own experience What if I can't really trust the people that I think I can trust, right? Like after my story came out, because I went on the record, there were some people who tracked me down at my work email who I didn't know, who said, thanks for speaking up. You know, I'm inspired by your bravery and the thought that those people might actually be working for the senator who I had, you know, had the courage to speak up about never crossed my mind but now it was suddenly in the back of my mind always that harm is a more intangible one than the one that people immediately saw but it was very visceral for me because it came so quickly on the heels of this this
1: scary experience I had sharing my own story so you had this idea tell us what has come of that idea you know i
0: i recognized that this was a moment where both lawmakers on the Hill and the leaders in my own workplace were willing to respond to the stories they were hearing with actual policy change. And I wanted to make sure I felt like as a lawyer and as a former policy person, this was a contribution I could make to this moment was to make sure that Policy change came out of it, and not just any policy change, but the right kind of thought through policy changes that would really make a difference. And so I ended up leaving my firm to start the Purple Campaign, which is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to address workplace harassment by implementing stronger corporate policies, establishing better laws, and empowering people to create lasting change in their own workplaces and communities.
1: When you think back to that young woman who is doing her internship, like, uh, based on all of these years now of hard knocks and good luck, what would you advise her? Uh,
0: Well, I think one of the things that's really hard about that question is that And I have said this in other contexts before that I think the advice that I got at 18 not to report this was probably the right advice from a pure career perspective. And that cannot be true. And that is what motivates me to do the work that I'm doing now. I think that the fact that if I could go back in time and and tell her what to do, I'd probably tell her to do exactly what she did, which was don't make a big deal out of this build your institutional power by continuing to work hard and get out of that job, which I was very lucky I was able to do because it was a temporary internship. And so I didn't have to make the very difficult choice that so many people do between walking away from a job I otherwise wanted to stay in or knowingly subjecting myself to behavior again or reporting it and risking retaliation. So I kind of had a a good way out that most people don't. And so that's what really motivates me to do this work now is to think about the people who are stuck in jobs where this is happening to them and they don't have that choice.
1: Thank you, Ali. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, this is fun. That was Ali Call, founder of the Purple Campaign. It's been a week, folks. And you're listening to me at the start of my fourth week of working from home. And a lot of us are p- feeling pretty tired, pretty disconnected. And many of us who are healthy and not working on the front lines, we're looking for ways to show up for other people right now. It's a hard thing to do when you can't actually see them, when you can't bring your neighbor over food, when you can't sit with a close friend in real life and have a cup of coffee. But there are people who are getting really creative about showing up. A listener named Jeff Berman wrote to me from L.A. about a very cool thing he was doing. So I called him. So, Jeff, you are in L.A., and you're doing something really cool there. Tell me what it is.
2: So um, we're, we're very close friends with a couple of chef restaurateurs, Brooke Williamson and Nick Roberts, who um, are experiencing what most local restaurants are experiencing, the challenges of not only keeping their doors open, but keeping paychecks coming to the, the people who have worked with them for years. And um, we were trying to solve uh, some of their challenges while also solving a, a critical Frontline challenge, which is we've got all these medical heroes on on the front line of the COVID battle, and they're not getting um, free, healthy, regular meals. Um, so we were heading down a path of just trying to match Brook and Nick's restaurants with a couple of hospitals and see if we could expand it. Um, when we realized that in parallel, a group of moms who are also executives were attacking the same problem more from the hospital side and were, were a full step ahead of us. Um, so we merged the efforts. We are starting now with six hospital ERs and ICUs, feeding 450 healthcare heroes uh, each day uh, as a pilot. And the goal is to be able to scale to serve literally thousands a day um, in just the next couple of weeks and for as long as this lasts.
1: And who is the food feeding exactly? The nurses and the doctors?
2: It's literally everyone who's working in the ERs and ICUs. We felt it was important that, that everyone working there uh, have their, 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 their bodies and souls nourished with healthy, fresh, free food. Um, so part of our mission is to make sure that everyone who's working there is taken care of because they're all mission critical.
1: Where did this idea come from?
2: The, the group of moms who started their piece of this it came from a, a mom in their network who's an ER doctor um, and who, who was expressing the, the need to, you know, on these these lengthy, difficult, emotionally challenging shifts uh, to get a, a, a quick, healthy meal. Um, and on the other side, it came from uh, dear friends who are chefs and restaurateurs who were laying off scores of people and trying to figure out how to keep the lights on and also keep paychecks coming to to their incredible team members.
1: And how long did it take from idea to uh, actualization?
2: Well, we we all started working on this about six days ago. Uh, We formalized the partnership with World Central Kitchen two days ago, and we're up and running tomorrow with 450 meals. So um, the, 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 we've already done some meal delivery, but, but this formal kickoff of the pilot, it's, it's about a week from a idea to, to pilot execution.
1: And the obvious question, Jeff, is how can we help?
2: The, the number one thing is getting the word out. This is going to cost a lot of money. Um, we're, we're, we've got the cost of meal down as low as you can get it in a manner that still allows these restaurants to get enough to pay their rent and pay their people. You know, $15 makes a massive difference in our ability to do this. So we've got our kids are raiding their piggy banks and are supporting this effort. And um, the more we can get the word out, the, the better chance we have of fulfilling the mission.
1: If we want to throw our own quarters into your virtual hat, we could go to GoFundMe. And what do we search for?
2: Search for help feed the front line fighting COVID-19.
1: Help feed the frontline fighting COVID-19. All right, Jeff, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Uh, have a really successful week at home.
2: Grateful, Jesse. Thank you.
1: That was Jeff Berman. And please keep writing to me about what you're doing to stay and feel connected to yourselves, to your families, to your colleagues, to your community. You can write to me at Hello Monday at LinkedIn.com. That's Hello Monday at LinkedIn.com. If you like our show, and we hope you do, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It takes two seconds and it helps new listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show was produced by Sarah Storm. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini, Victoria Taylor, Michaela Greer, and Juliette Verreaux hold us to our highest selves. Thanks, folks. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and you also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. Keep washing those hands, and we'll see you next Monday. Thanks for listening. Now, Jeff, you're also at home doing e-learning now with, uh, three tweens, right?
2: Uh, yes, uh, a teen and and two tweens. And, um, I, I have been it support and Spanish tutor so far this morning. (laughs) How's it working? I I mean, the, the kids are super resilient and, uh, trying to keep optimistic and, um, we're, we're trying to have as much fun as we can. So, so far so good. Having four of us on video conferences at once is, uh, straining the bandwidth of the house in more than one way, but we're making it work.
1: I really hear you.